Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the Fox Nomad Podcast. I'm your host, Fox Nomad, Anil Polat. I am in Istanbul, Turkey right now for the next couple of days while I put together some travel plans that are turning out to be a little bit trickier than I thought they would be. But maybe I'm just maybe I'm just out of travel practice. But uh, I've got by the time you're listening to this, hopefully I will have some of those plans in place. Got to do a little bit of running around. And if you're listening to this right as this podcast comes out, I just dropped a new video about Islandia on YouTube. If you listen to the episode of the podcast with Marshall Mayer, then you know that he asked me or it kind of came up in conversation. He was like, hey, you're going to be in Belize in a few weeks after this podcast. Do you want to go check out the island I crowdfunded that's turning into a micronation? Well, guess what? I made it. And that video is right now up on YouTube. I think you're going to enjoy it very much. Hopefully by the next episode, I'll have a couple of travel updates for you. But before then, today, I have two guests I think you're really going to enjoy. My first guest is Jen Ruiz. She is from jenonajetplane.com. I wanted to talk to her about really about two things. One is when 2017, you know, when she was about to turn 30, before that, she was working full time as an attorney she was like, I'm going to try to go in 20 trips, go take 20 trips in 12 months and then see what happens. Right. And we talk about that. And now today she is an Amazon bestselling author, a three time TEDx speaker and a guru when it comes to saving you money on travel, how to save money on flights. All of that. We talk about that journey. I think it's going to be really interesting, especially for those of you who are into flight hacking. So we do get into that a little bit. And my second guest today is Liliana Monhe. She is the co-founder and CEO of Sabio Coding Bootcamp. And what they focus on is teaching people skills like coding after they've already started a professional career. So we have two guests that made a career change sort of, you know, at a point where a lot of people don't make a career change, right? After you've started one career, Many people are scared to change careers and uh, we talk about coding, the importance of learning how to program, how that works, what do the courses look like. It's pretty interesting, especially if you've been thinking about making a career jump. We've got some inspiration, we've got some how-to, we've got a couple of different uh, topics all coming together. Uh, thanks, Jen, for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Um, I was interested to talk to you because you have a very interesting story of going from being a lawyer a couple of years ago and then traveling the world as as many of us have embarked on this kind of journey but you've gotten into writing books about all sorts of things but how other people can do it i i'm curious how that career shift took place what was the genesis of that sure well first thank you for having me it's a pleasure to be here and i Definitely did not see this being where I would be at this point in life. You know, when you're going to law school, I think you have this 
five-year path, 10-year path, and it starts to feel really rigid and set, right? And what's expected of you and having student loans, things like that. So for me, the impetus for the switch was actually when I was approaching my 30th birthday. And I realized that I had spent pretty much all my 20s working. I worked so hard to get into law school. And then I graduated by 24. And then I worked for a judge. And then I was working at a law firm. And it just felt like during the decade where everybody else was doing fun things and taking road trips and, you know, going to the beach, I was working on goals. And because I was taught that that's kind of how it should be, that there should be this delayed gratification and that you should put in all the work now so that you can reap the benefits later. And I just felt like I wanted to do something for me that was personal and not necessarily professional because I did feel like I had reached a lot of professional accomplishments, but like my personal life had suffered. Like I didn't really have any of those epic memories. So I set out to take 12 trips in 12 months before my 30th birthday. And that was a challenge that kept me very busy just with figuring out how to afford flights, where to go, you know, what I wanted to see, um, how to fit it in with my schedule at work because I was still working at the time. Um, and that was where I fell in love with travel. I realized that when I was traveling, I was more excited about the trip than I was about coming back home, that I really was just looking forward to that. And it was because ultimately when I was traveling, I had this presence and this ability to be in the moment and kind of what everybody strives for, right? When everybody talks about a meditation state or the power of now and Eckhart Tolle and all these different things and what we should be as humans. And I don't think I ever really I felt that because I was always thinking so much and I was always working so hard that I never just was in the moment and travel gave that to me naturally. And I realized that, you know, when I felt just so much more at peace and I realized like, oh, it's because I'm actually taking time to like smell the new scents and listen to the birds chirping and, you know, taste the really amazing flavors. I'm in the present. I'm not in my head thinking about the future. I'm not worried about the past and things I may or may not have done right or wrong. Um, and so it was just that being. And so it was addictive. And I think for anybody who travels, they'll, they'll say the same thing because it's a way to get yourself out out of your daily rut, out of your routine, out of thinking, you know, these are all the problems that I have and out of, and just see the world with such a bigger lens and your problems just seem small in comparison. Yeah. And I, I've spoken with a lawyer uh, in the past on the podcast, and he had a very interesting response to the, to the question I'm going to ask you, which is being a lawyer is kind of one of those professions that, you know, people think is you know, it's sort of like the evil profession. But to me, a lawyer can also be something that that's good, you know, like that helps a lot of people. I don't know what kind of lawyer you were. So um, I don't know if this is the case. But did you feel like you were leaving something where you were having an impact? Or were you dissatisfied with the job that made you kind of leave? Um, I was pretty squarely on the side of helping people all along. I clerked for a judge in a felony trial court. I worked in as a social security disability advocate, trying to help people get benefits. And then I ended up in uh, legal aid working to help defend people from foreclosure. So I did feel like I was on the right side of the law all along, generally, um, once I was barred and practicing. But it felt 
first at, at times it did feel futile. Like there was only so much you could do to help people. Um, I do think that I helped people in the time that I was there that I was meant to help that were meant to come across my, um, my desk. And because I was the person that could really defend them in the way that they deserve to be, you know, represented that I think other attorneys maybe wouldn't have seen that and they wouldn't have known how to give it the right, you know, um, like a few people I know I was meant to help. And I know that a lot of attorneys can have the possibility of just turning cases away because they don't want to help people or they don't want to get stuck down the rabbit hole. And I help people that I know other people wouldn't have helped. So I was meant to be there at that time. And I don't regret it at all. Um, but I think I also just kind of took what I loved about law, which was storytelling. And now I get to do that from a global perspective. And I also help people by sharing and raising awareness of what they do and their livelihoods and kind of what they have to offer. So it's a lot of what I love about the law with a lot of what I don't, which was that feeling of my hands are tied because there's something administrative or there's something else or there's something money-wise that no matter what I do, the person's always going to come out on, on the bottom. Um, I feel now as a travel writer, I have a lot more power to really make a difference and lift people up and, and explode their lives. If we get, you know, good publicity for them, all of a sudden you can make them a whole other um, life path. So it's been a, it's been an interesting transition and I do feel responsibility in both senses. I feel responsibility to have represented people to the best of my ability and I feel responsibility now to tell their story in the best way possible to as many people as possible. I feel bad now if a story I write doesn't have the reach that I want it to or that I feel doesn't have the impact that it should, especially if I know it's a really amazing cause or organization or business or person that I'd like to highlight. So it's it's interesting. It's two sides of a coin. And I think that as an attorney and having had that responsibility, I can now appreciate that more and appreciate the power of storytelling in, in telling a narrative. And it, it seems like you have the drive. I feel like lawyers have a drive because to to get through the gauntlet to become a lawyer seems like you 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 can't really like slack off, right? Like you have to be pretty organized and focused. Um, so I'm curious, you, you're a lawyer, you're, you're doing all this work, and then you decide to take these 12 trips. Okay. Did you know every all the 12 places? Did you know all the trips ahead of time? Or were you just, did you know one or three? Or how, how did you plan that? And where did you go? Yeah, so the first trip was to Athens, Greece. And when I was there, uh, it was to celebrate my 29th birthday. And I loved it so much that I thought to myself, wouldn't it be great if I could keep this feeling going all year long as a way to celebrate the end of a decade, right? As a way to celebrate this momentous milestone birthday. Um, so just have a really big 30th birthday celebration for me. And that's when I had the idea to take a trip every month to extend that feeling. So I didn't have to wait until my 30th birthday birthday to feel like I was still celebrating the end of my 20s and I was celebrating my youth and I was making the most of that year. It felt like an amazing race kind of countdown, like the time was running out for me to see as many things as I could and say that I had this great experience in my 20s. So I had that sense of urgency. Um, and I also just felt like it was something that I would figure out as I went along. Sorry, excuse me. Um, and so I was thinking 
I, I knew there was like, I knew I wanted to see lavender in the South of France. I knew that was a bucket list experience that if I could pick anywhere in the world to go, I wanted to do that. And so that was already fixed for July. But other than that, my calendar was pretty flexible and I was open to filling it in with things as it came up, as I found good deals. JetBlue had a new uh, route that they launched to Aruba. So I was able to find a round trip flight to Aruba for $70. And that's how I ended up in Aruba in March. Um, that wasn't originally on my, you know, radar even, and I had a great time there. So it really depended on where I found flight deals, um, kind of what was available. I ended up going to Cuba very last minute because I found a, like a $90 deal on Delta and it was a half hour flight. So I was like, why not? Let's go for the weekend. Um, and so, yeah, it was a lot of different um, some impromptus, but also planning consistently throughout in terms of like figuring out how to earn more money, figuring out how to save money on flight, learning about credit cards and travel hacking. So I was doing all of that at the same time. And where were you flying in and out of? Where was your home base before this? I was flying in and out of South Florida. And so that was really helpful because South Florida has so many great airports. And I do recommend for people to be flexible in terms of their departure or arrival airports if they're looking for cheap flights. Because I was located in Naples and it would have been almost impossible to find cheap flights from Fort Myers, that airport, which was a little bit more obscure. So I would always drive to Fort Lauderdale and Miami because these were bigger international airports. And from Miami, you can find flights to almost anywhere, right? Same thing from New York, from LAX, from Austin, from Chicago. So there are kind of these hub airports everywhere. And if you can find a way to reach them, you can save a lot of money and you can have a lookout for flight deals um, from these major airports. You can get almost anywhere from New York City for like $500 round trip if you wait long enough for a deal. And I mean, almost anywhere, except maybe Antarctica, but other than that, like Kenya, New Zealand, like you'll find the deals. So um, for me, I was very flexible and I was driving to different airports to be able to take off. South Florida was my base and it was a very good base. Yeah. And there are a couple of misconceptions when it comes to flights. And I don't, people ask me this a lot and I don't know if I have a good answer. I, th I think I, I have sort of a non-answer, which is, should you book your flights way in advance or way at the last minute? I feel like both can work, but, you know, they both have their dangers, I, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. Um, generally, the sweet spot is about maybe six weeks or so in advance for domestic flights and maybe like two to three months in advance for international flights. And those are kind of where you'll find the best sweet spot for pricing, because sometimes flights that are too far out can be really expensive. But uh, I think you should book whenever you see a deal. I think that's my number one advice. So don't think like, oh, I'm not going to book it now because it might get cheaper later, or I don't like, just don't think about that. If you see a deal, book. And usually you hear a lot of people saying things like, oh, is it cheaper to book a flight on Tuesday, you know, versus something else? Um, again, at any time you see a deal, just book it. There's really no data to say that there is or isn't a best day to book a deal that's based on an outdated model where airlines used to post new fares on that day. But now, you know, they're constantly updating new fares. So if you see a fare book, but there is some data to support that prices tend to be the most reasonable around that six week mark for domestic and like two to three month mark for, um, for international flights. So that being said, 
I would look always for things like flight alerts, which can let you know when there is a deal so that you can book whenever that deal comes up. If you're flexible, you know, hundred percent, you want to go to Italy next summer. I would be signing up for flight alerts so that from now till then you'll be notified when there is a deal and you can be like, Oh, that's a great deal to Italy. I'm going to hop on that and, and get that. So that's a great way to stay in the know. Um, also generally know that budget airlines, especially domestic ones here in the US, Frontier, Spirit, Allegiant, JetBlue, all of them will host sales every couple of weeks to sell unsold seats. So Southwest just finished doing a sale, $59 fare sale, and it's one-way flights that they significantly discount um, just to sell unsold seats. And you'll be notified of those if you sign up for emails. So there's lots of different ways there that you can um, you know, find a good deal, it, regardless of when you're booking. And I guess uh, now we're, we're sort of jumping into the topics of your books, but I, I, I wanted to ask you, when someone's budgeting out a trip, and I, 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 not to put words in your mouth, but I'm assuming that you wrote one of the books, because a lot of people don't travel as much as they do, or they want to, because they're worried about the cost. Um, Absolutely. So if we look at a trip, you know, like as a, as a, like a, a pie chart of budgets, you've got your flights, food, accommodation, you know, activities, where can people save the most? Where, where's, are we looking at flights? Is that where you save the most money? If you really, where you should put your most, uh, most of your effort? For me, it is because I think flights are something that are cost prohibitive for a lot of people. And it's a big hurdle in their mind that they have to cross or the thing I can never afford to fly to fly there. Similarly, once you have a flight somewhere, you're like, oh, I have to figure the rest of this out. I already have the flight book. So it's a really good kind of hook. And once you save money on the flight, everything else can be figured out. You can get affordable accommodation, affordable food anywhere in the world because people live all over the world on different projects points. So once you get there, you can really figure out how it is that you want to travel based on your budget, based on your price points. If you're in hostels and eating street food, or if you're in, you know, four-star hotels and eating at, you know, Michelin star restaurants, however it is that you choose to travel. But generally having that flight there can be the problem. And that applies Again, if you're a budget traveler or a luxury traveler, because let's say that you want to get to Asia, but you don't want to fly there in economy class. And so it's really important for you to be able to find an affordable first class flight for that 17 hours that you're going to be in that seat because you know you just won't make it in the middle seat and you know the last row. So um, that's when it becomes really helpful for you to save the money on the flight. And that's where it can make a difference between you going on the trip or not. Um, I personally love for flying you know, for free, it, both first class or coach, if you just want to take a lot of different flights all over the world, travel um, hacking, which is using points and miles to redeem for free award travel. That's a great way to get to destinations that you might feel are out of reach. You know, the Maldives, New Zealand, you know, all these other places that Kenya for safari, wherever it is you want to go. Um, it can be difficult to get there on budget airlines. You know, JetBlue doesn't necessarily fly to the Maldives. So um, you can find a 
affordable flights there and just pay the cost of taxes and fees if you have points and miles. And if you learn how to use your everyday spending on restaurants and gas purchases to maximize those points, and then you use those points to get your free award travel. The same could apply to hotels. I do have friends that have um, definitely done some bucket list hotels. I have friends that travel hack their honeymoon and they stayed at the overwater bungalows and they got those with points and miles. So it depends on what is your priority. But generally, I feel like if you can knock out a flight and if you can get a, a flight reserve, you feel committed to the trip and you feel like you've knocked out the biggest expense that's, that's you know, preventing you from getting there. And you, you, so you've taken these 12 trips. This year has gone by. You've learned all of this, you know, a lot of the, the ways to save money on the road. How did the books come about? How do you start writing books? Does that happen as you're traveling, which seems like it would be difficult? Or do you do that after the trip? And just to add to that question, are you going back to the to the office, right? Are you still an attorney, I'm assuming at this point? So do you go back and work a little bit? Or how, what happened after? Yes. Um, so I was still working throughout the trips. Afterwards, I had at that point started to really run out of time off and, and paid leave and things like that. So it became trickier. Um, and so when the year ended, I, it ended in January and then I quit in April. So I only stayed a little bit longer. And in February, I wrote my first book. Uh, and in March, I published it. And so once I saw even nominal success, um, I was out of there because I also had a job teaching English online that I had taken on to help fund my 12 trips and 12 months challenge. So I knew that worst case scenario, I could do that job making $20 an hour while traveling, and I could support myself in a digital nomad capacity. So I had that to fall back on. And I knew I also, I was young. I didn't have, you know, I don't still have any children or, or animals or things like that. So I had the freedom of movement. And I knew that if I stayed too long, I might be scared to move later. So I figured better to take the leap and figure it out. I have an income stream online. I have that flexibility. The book was something where I wasn't writing it along the way. I wrote it in a weekend in February, um, but I was promoting it along the way unbeknownst to me. And I think that's really important because a lot of people think that writing a book is about writing a book. But really, writing a book is about selling a book. That's why it's called the best-selling book and not a best-written book, um, because um, nobody is going to buy your book if they don't know about it. They can't read it. Um, and so it's really useless if you don't market it. And so unbeknownst to me, I was already marketing that book for the entire year that I was doing the challenge. Every time I posted on social media, hey, I'm going to Aruba for $70. People were like, what? That's amazing. So now I was getting traction and I had essentially spent an entire year priming my audience to get this book. This was the book that they wanted from me. I thought I was going to write more a memoir about the experience, which I'm actually working on now. And I'm very happy to say I have a, a five-figure book deal with a publishing company uh, and it's amazing, but that wasn't the right time to work on that book because I needed to give people what it is that they most wanted to know from me, which is how are you getting to all these places on a budget, you know, for less money, we want to fly for less too. And so by doing that, I had 
been able to build the book up to a point where it actually became an instant bestseller in eight categories on Amazon. And it won a reader's favorite book award. My very first book won a book award. And that was very encouraging for me um, to just tell me to keep going, right? This is a proof of concept. It's working. People are use, using this information. Uh, and I think that that's for anybody who wants to write a book, I think keeping those two things in mind first, that if you give people something that they already want from you versus what you're trying to get them to want from you, it's going to be a much easier process and that it's important to really focus on selling and marketing the book because it could be the most fabulous book in the world. But if people do not actually read it, it's not going to help anybody. And and how did that, the nugget start? Like, you know, you, you said you were promoting it online, but how did people follow you online? Like, how did that start? Did you just, you know, have an Instagram and it, it grew organically? How, how did you do that? I've been blogging since 2014. I've rebranded my website twice uh, until I landed on Jen on a Jet Plane in 2016. And then I took that challenge in 2017. So at the time, I did have social media, I did have a blog, and I was posting on there, but very much in a small capacity. It was not monetized. I was just trying to grow it. I didn't have any paid brand partnerships or anything like that. Um, that year, actually, one of the trips was to a travel conference where I was able to really see that difference as well. And that was also a big indication for me that I was in the wrong career because every time I was sent to a law conference, I would want to sleep for as long as possible, get to the session late, sit in the back, really play on the computer and just hope nobody called on me. Um, and then leave early and go do other stuff around the hotel. Like I just thought that's what all conferences were. Um, and then I went to a travel conference and I realized I was running, trying to see all the sessions and I was sitting in the front row and I was taking notes and I was raising my hand and participating and I liked it. I was really excited to be there. I enjoyed what I was learning. I enjoyed what I was doing. And that was initially definitely a huge sign that I was just in the wrong profession because I dreaded legal conferences and legal events and excuse me, travel events were so much fun. And so I just knew right off the bat that that was something that I wanted to put more time into and make more into a business. And so it took some time for me to grow, but that conference was a big catalyst in seeing what I could be doing and how it could be a business. It's taken years. That was 2017. It's now 2022. Um, since I quit my job after that, it took a year for me to replace that attorney income with online income streams, including teaching English online. Now I'm happy to say that I've since quit teaching English online and I make more than double what I did as an attorney um, with just full income streams from blogging, writing, digital marketing. Um, and it's, it's really great, but it's taken time to get here. It was a process. And so what's next? I, 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 I think of the pandemic as this huge block, but also a catalyst, right? So a lot of people before, I, I feel like it's it's been a good thing in one sense in that it's forced companies to realize that remote work is possible, right? Many people have been traveling digital nomads. They picked that up a long time ago, right? If you work at a computer, 90% of those jobs mean you can do that anywhere as long as you have a computer. And now the pandemic has kind of forced companies to get on board with that how has that changed like your advice to people and also how has it changed what you're working on next and your travels you know because we have this huge just sort of like lost almost two years in the middle 
Yeah, I think it's definitely been interesting to see so many of the rigid industries that were so set on never being remote, law being one of them, right? You have to be in the courtroom, you have to be in person. And then all of a sudden the pandemic comes around and everything is online and everything magically switches. So it can be done. You just chose not to do it that way for many years. Um, and I think that that's with anything. So everybody says it can't be done. Everybody says you can't make money blogging, but really it's just that people choose to believe that old mindset instead of choosing to believe that it can be done in a new way. And I think I was reading a book the other day and it said that, like, how sad that you think that only the things that have been done are the things that can be done moving forward. Like what a limited world you live in versus a world of thinking that so many other things can be done. So I think I was just ahead of the curve in seeing that it was possible. And I don't even think I was one of the originators. There are bloggers older than me, um, you know, 10 years older than me that were really ahead of the curve and saw the potential. And now I think everybody sees it and everybody wants to be an influencer and everybody wants to be, um, you know, just an online media personality, but it's not, it's not something that can be done without really having an idea of what it is that you want to do as a business, what your core skill set is and who it is you want to help. So for me, I know I like writing and storytelling. It was really easy to transition because I already had a background in writing. So when I was pitching to magazines and things like that, I could have my degree to fall back on and people would take me more seriously, even if I didn't have a big portfolio. Um, I could feel confident writing a book and publishing a book um, on my own because I was a lawyer. So I had backgrounds. I knew how contracts work. I figure like I'll figure all this out and so everything is really learn as you go um, and I think that if you're somebody that's considering doing this it's going to be harder to find remote jobs now that everybody wants one an actual nine to five job working remotely for a company so I think don't be afraid to make your own job we're seeing a lot of the freelancer gig economy just understanding that there's two different personalities required for each and that to be in a nine to five job you really have to be somebody that's okay with taking direction you know having somebody supervise you and oversee you and having that um, limitations in terms of your own autonomy and that the cons of coming that comes with the freedom of being an entrepreneur is that you have to do everything yourself. You have to motivate yourself. You have to meet the deadlines. Like you have to push through. And so it's, it's give and take depending on what you like, but how wonderful that we're in an age where you can reach so many people with a click of a button. I think a lot about the old movies and like the salesmen that would go and try to sell vacuums door to door and how they would have to like physically walk all the time to like maybe sell one vacuum and maybe talk to maybe a hundred houses in the day and how backbreaking that was and how now we have that impact exponentially like times a hundred you can reach the equivalent of a thousand doors in the click of a button to potentially sell your vacuum or whatever your product is and have a much quicker rate and all you have to do is just sit there like you do not have to walk you do not have to do anything and it's so crazy the opportunities we have online now that I think um as the world continues to evolve and see technology reach all of these different areas of the world and everybody become connected so quickly, it's almost impossible not to take advantage of that if you're somebody that, that knows that you have a gift to share with the world. So I hope, excuse me, that it's encouraging to people and that they do their own thing as well. Yeah, I mean, I think, right, just the, the time savings in general can be you know, a benefit. So companies always look at the bottom line, but it's like, um, you know, if you cut out a commute, for example, and for most people, a lot of people, an hour total commute, you know, 30 minutes to office, 30 minutes, seems pretty standard. And it's probably a lot more for a lot of people, especially in the US. So just that time savings, 
frees up so much. It makes for happier workers. It saves them money because they're not bringing, you know, buying lunch out. They're not paying for gas or, you know, public transport, all these things. Um, it's also, you know, randomly, like we saw during the pandemic, car accidents go down. So it's safer, right? So like when you're not outside, not to sound agoraphobic, but when you're not outside, you know, it's a lot safer, right? There's less chance of you tripping and breaking your leg or getting into a car accident or whatever it may be. So there are all these benefits and hopefully, um, I, I, I should ask you, do you think this is going to continue or the companies and the, the world is going to start to fight back on it? You know? Oh, no, I think we're just, I mean, I do think we're going to see growing pains as with anything. It takes like kind of three to five years to adjust. And there's an ebb and flow as people push back and push forward and things adjust and shift. Um, but we've definitely hit a turning point from which there's no coming back because the whole antiquated nine to five mentality came from a time where you wanted butts and seeds, like you have to have this production, like kind of from a factory warehouse mentality. And now we operate much differently. Um, it's not really like, task product like turnout oriented it's more like from any one particular project that you're working on it's just a much different setting and, and different goals for your workers and we're seeing the benefits the health benefits right we're much more health conscious now than when you would have people in a factory just smoking cigarettes back to back and like labeling your packages i think now we're really trying to be more conscious about having work-life balance about having people that are happy to be there about having well you know mental mental health and having that be a, a priority and so we have seen so many cultural shifts now that I think we're going to see work have to evolve along with that. But as with anything, it's going to take time and there's going to be some growing pains as companies try to figure things out. What kind of, you know, I think anything that's above the curve, these, um, you know, the WeWork that's now the, the uh, Apple TV movie, and they're talking about um, the remote offices that they're starting everywhere and all these new products that are adapting to this. And they're going to be the ones that are going to see exponential growth. That's why Amazon saw exponential growth because it was one of the first to do online marketplaces, you know, um, and so I think anybody that hops ahead of the curve is going to always see that reward, but we're inevitably going to have the lag of like the majority of people that just want to drag their feet because they don't like change and companies are definitely going to drag their feet because they like the way the status quo, but I think it's just going to take some time, but ultimately we will see that hopefully the working atmosphere will be better all around, both for productivity, for the company and output, and also for the workers and, and their lifestyle. So right now, um, as we sort of wrap things up, you're working on your memoir, right? Is it done? Are you in draft mode? And are, are you, you know, what's the progress? Yes, it's due in August. I am in draft mode. I am pouring over every detail, trying to really refine and make sure everything is perfect. Um, so we'll be working on that for a little bit, a couple more months still, um, working with a coach and editor and all of that. And then hopefully it'll be released next fall of 2023. And any trips in between then? And um, I'll, I'll ask that. And then I got one last one that I, I just have to ask, but yeah. Yes, many trips, always, always. Um, just in the next month alone, I'll be speaking at three different travel conferences uh, in Washington State, here in Puerto Rico, and then in Kansas City, uh, Missouri. So interesting places, always travel conferences are in kind of uh, quote unquote second tier cities because they want to bring tourism to those cities. Um, I'll also be traveling on a trip to Outer Banks, North Carolina, doing uh, some work with the DMO there. So lots of different press trips and things lined up. 
up. Um, hopefully some really exciting trips like to Egypt or Turkey. Um, so that would hopefully be in the fall, maybe Vietnam now that it's reopened. So let's see. So I, I like to ask people who travel or who just in general, what is that? Did you have a time or a moment where you were like, oh my God, like, I can't believe I'm experiencing this, whatever that happens to be. As an example, I've had, you know, probably you've had multiple of these. The one time, one of those times I had was something very basic, which was when I went to the Taj Mahal the first time. It was something I had seen on, you know, TV and photos and all that stuff. And when I was standing there looking at it, um, it was a clear day because normally it's pretty polluted. I've been back a couple of times, but when you see it, I was like, I can't believe I'm seeing this with my own eyes and I'm here right now. It was one of those moments that was very surreal. Do you have a moment or moments like that from your travels just that you'd like to share? Um, definitely all of the big wonders, right? So uh, sunrise at Angkor Wat, uh, Machu Picchu, all of those, but those were all kind of crowded. Um, and so that can take away from the magic a little bit. I would say where I really just had like a, wow, this is awesome moment that sticks with me is in the South of France, um, where I was at Lac de Saint Croix and it was like a Monday and it was this beautiful turquoise green water and everybody's just happy and frolicking. It's in the middle of a pristine canyon and all you hear is birds and it's just so picture perfect I'm like nothing's wrong with the world right now and I just couldn't believe that I had the luck to be there on a Monday afternoon where everybody else is at work you know struggling and fighting with somebody on the phone sending an angry email asking who ate their lunch from the fridge and I'm here in the middle of like bliss and <laughs> just, um, just on a paddle boat just relaxing and enjoying and taking it in that was the first time I really felt relaxed just really so sublime and just so at peace and all the other places were amazing but also high adrenaline like you want to get the pictures of mm. of Angkor Wat with all the people there and like you know competing around them and you want to get like Machu Picchu like the perfect view and all that and you're climbing and so it can feel like you're working for it a little bit um you're kind of sometimes running to beat the crowds but this just felt like there's no working for anything this is what heaven looks like and there's no rush here I just enjoy would you like a snack to go with your paddle boat like just like so many it was just so perfect and it was just such a happy relaxed day that was in sharp contrast to the hustle and bustle I'm always doing so it's something that sticks with me as a moment that I try to go to internally when I just need to feel a sense of inner calm oh that's that's really nice I I I love the response I get when I ask people that question because it feels universal that you do have those moments and those moments stay with you forever and um, can kind of change your life, like change your career, change kind of what you're doing. Uh, thank you very much, Jen, for being on the podcast. Um, if you could let everybody know where they can find you, what you're working on, um, all the, the, the usuals, which I don't have to tell you about. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Anil. You can find me at jetonajetplane.com. I'm on Amazon. My books are under Jen Ruiz and under social media, the same handle at jetonajetplane. Cool. Well, thanks again. And uh, thanks everybody for listening. I'll link to your site and the books all in the show notes. And uh, yeah, we'll talk again soon. So if you could give me a little bit about your background and how Sabio sort of came to be. And where the idea came from? 
Same as Liliana. Yeah, definitely. Um, so the idea for Sabio came about uh, in 2012. My partner and I, Gregorio Rojas and I, were understanding that there was a big uh, lack of diverse talent in Los Angeles. And we really wanted to do something to help more Latinos, more Black people become exceptional software engineers. So we set off to create Sabio Coding Bootcamp to accomplish that goal. And is your is your background in software development? Um, so Gregorio, my co-founder and CTO, was a software engineer for 15 years when he decided um, that you know it was time for uh, a new way to cultivate diverse talent. And so he had that experience. Um, I was working actually in economic development, so we kind of both join forces um, to make an impact in tech. And from my understanding, right, you're helping people who want to maybe get into software development, who maybe have already started a career in something else, right? So th this would be almost like a second career. Um, as someone who has a technical background, I know that coding is one of those things that's not for everybody in, in, in terms of you, you have to really like coding, I, I feel like, to get through the slog of it. it. How do you prepare people to get into coding? You know, how do you get over that barrier? First of all, it's intimidating, but also, hey, this is something maybe totally different than what you're used to. Yeah, so we have a number of free resources that are found on our website that both discuss the, um, the industry of software engineering. So they kind of understand what they're getting into in terms of like the professional world. Um, and then for the actual coding, we have three free classes on our website, and we also offer a community on Slack, and we offer a weekly live help so that people can kind of tip, um, you know, dip their toe in the water and see if it is something that they are going to be excited about. Um, you know, we also get a lot of people who have already been doing, you know, free Code Academy classes, have been watching videos on YouTube. Um, a lot of people, you know, made changes to their MySpace page. Um, and so people have dabbled with, the, you know, maybe people have messed around with MailChimp themes that they had to go in there and fix because the MailChimp theme wasn't doing exactly what they wanted to do. So there are lots of different ways for people to kind of um, play around with it a little bit before they decide that they absolutely want to take the plunge and dedicate their time to this. And, and why coding, I guess? I mean, I, I think I have an idea. It's a good field, right? There are a lot of jobs in software development. But why coding instead of something else, for example? Why, you know, shift to coding as a second career? Yeah, so there's a massive opportunity gap um, wherein our entire life, especially when we said it was doing birthday parties on Zoom, everybody was ordering food online. Um, and so the, the trend towards, you know, digitization um, accelerated, but we were already on a very rapid growth trajectory. Um, however, so you see that growing exponentially, right? However, if you just look at the statistics of how many people graduate from high school doing any type of coding, or if you see how many people graduate from college with a computer science background, that has remained relatively flat. So that just creates a massive area of opportunity. Um, you see the same thing in a couple of other sectors like healthcare, right? Because our population is getting older, especially in states like California, 
um, you need more healthcare workers and you're not graduating more nurses. So there's an opportunity gap there. So at different times in the economic cycle, there are different opportunity gaps that exist and people have to take advantage of them. Technology is one of those areas. And how do you encourage people who may not have thought of coding to, to get into it? You know, that intimidation factor of writing a program. Yeah, so we try to make it um, very accessible to people and encourage individuals that think of themselves as problem solvers, think of themselves as wanting to be creative and wanting to contribute to this digital uh, revolution um, to give themselves an opportunity to try one of our free classes, to, um, to participate in an info session and hear from other people who have been through the path to see if there's something that they hear, something that they experience that resonates with them. Obviously, not every single person on earth is going to be a developer, um, but people should either confirm that it is for them or confirm that it's not for them. But people should not wholeheartedly discount it because they didn't do it in high school or because they did, didn't do it in college. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I, and I, I think your point earlier about you know, messing with like a web page or a newsletter or something like that. You know, a lot of people have, whether, you know, voluntarily or non-voluntarily had to deal with some type of coding, right? Some type of yes. basic coding. So it's, uh, it's not too alien, I think, to most of us, you know, when you have to even just like embedding a video into a web page or messing around with Facebook or something like that, you know, it, it, it comes up. Um, and I, you know, think that coding is something that a lot more people should know, which is why I was interested to speak with you because it's like, almost like going to a car mechanic, right? Like if you don't know anything about cars, it's like, you're taking it to a magician and you have no idea what's happening. It's just pure magic. But if you know a little bit, then it can really help you a do some of your own repairs and some of your own things, but also to understand more of how like the tech world and our world is kind of put together. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's just so much relevance right now, right? Like everybody wakes up and, you know, you're going to check, you know, some type of app, um, you know, either to connect with friends or, you know, check the stock market, right. To see what's going on. And then as you plan your day, you're going to go once again, check in with some kind of app to figure out how to navigate somewhere, how to get traffic, um, and then at the end of the day, you're going to log on to, you know, Netflix or Hulu to try and figure out how you're going to entertain yourself. And so there can't be this ridiculous disparity where we're all living our life online, but then people don't understand how that technology is created, how they can participate and be a creator. Um, and so we have to close that gap, right? And we've seen this happen throughout history when people went about and, you know, everybody had to learn to read. Everybody had to learn to do, you know, some algebraic math. We're now at that point where it's like, look, people, we all got to start getting some digital skills because it's just overwhelming us. And we can't be like, oh, I'm not a techie. Like, that's just not going to fly very much longer for everyone. So how do you approach it? Do you, do you mainly approach people that have already are already on a career path? Uh, I notice you do a lot of work with veterans. Um, or do you kind of tackle it in both ways? People who might be fresh out of college, for example, um, and decide, hey, I don't want to use that whatever you know, non-related degree, and maybe I want to uh, you know, learn to code. Do you approach it from both angles, or is it more toward you know, later in life? 
Yeah. So the way that we're structured is that we are designed to work with anyone that's 19 years old or plus. We really want to work with adults. Um, and so it can be a person that, um, you know, has never touched code, but they kind of had it somewhere in their mind that they're creative and they want to problem solve. And, and someone told them that this might be a good match. Um, you know, that's why there's a lot of introductory opportunities for people to start playing around and tinkering. Um, and then there are opportunities for people who, who've been like, hey, I've been trying to self-teach myself for a year and I'm really not getting anywhere. I'm just really frustrated and I need someone to help me get to that place where I could be employable. Because that's the other thing um, that a lot of people don't realize either. It's like, just like, you know, in singing or, or you know, any other craft, there's a gradient, right? And so the, the key is, can you get to the shade to the, to the place where you're employable, right? And so there's a lot of people who start and pick up a little bit of skills and do some stuff. And the trick is just to get you to that hump where someone's gonna pay you to do this work. And then you get into the super professional, senior engineer, all that other dance stuff. But there is that tipping point. And our goal is to get people from either zero or you know mucky middle to that place where you're employable. That's really what we focus on is getting you the skills that are gonna allow you to get paid to be a software engineer. Um, and there is a spot, there's a very clear determination of capabilities where people will start to pay you for these capabilities. I, I'm curious where that line is. Is that learning a specific language, you know, being fluent in one language or uh, are there some other criteria? Yeah, so we see it as three key components. You have to have um, the command of one, or two or three, you need at least one key languages. So it could be React, um, it could be C-sharp, it could be SQL, or it could be all three. Um, and then uh, you also really need to have an understanding of how to collaborate with others in a technical team. Um, and that's something that we teach. Um, the last half of our program is very team focused and you have to be contributing, you have to be collaborating with others, you can't just go hide in the corner. Um, and then you also have to build and ship something so that people can see that you have understanding of the language, you've done it with a team, and now there's something out there in the wild that exists that you contributed to, um, and that you can communicate what that is, both what you contributed, how you were part of this team, how this whole um, web application works together. And if you have, sufficient skills in those three different compartments, so to speak, then you are employable. That's what we have seen. Because if you're really good developer, but your communication skills stink, you're not going to be able to get past a technical interview, right? Unless you're just going to sit there and hammer away at hacker rank and, and get psycho crazy good so that someone kind of hits you up. But even then you have to communicate. Um, so you, at minimum, you have to have two out of the three, but we really work to help people develop enough of the three uh, different skill sets. Yeah, communication is key for developers. I mean, speaking from personal experience, uh, you know, having a foot in that world that it, it's definitely not everybody's strong. It's definitely probably the weakest part for, for a lot of people. Um, right, but we practice it every single day. You know, you start with your daily standups, that's communicating. Mm -hmm. We do that here. You have, you know, your Trello board with assignments where you write comments. Um, you're speaking with senior engineers. And then at the end of the evening, um, when staff leaves, uh, our team members, our, our, our students, they have to give each other presentations every day. 
And so you're either presenting or you're giving feedback on someone who's presented. So we just drive it in and drive it in. So you have eight weeks where people are communicating all day long. Yeah. And it seems like, I mean, I'm assuming that you're also, you know, teaching people, you know, like the, the process of communicating, I'm making an update here is a, you know, a commit, you know, to the repo yes. or whatever, which I think a lot of people, at least from, from school, you don't really learn that in college too much. You, they touch upon it, but it's mainly like learning to code, but they don't really get into the details of like, when you're working with a team, you can't just, you know, start changing things as you see fit without testing it. You know, there are these procedures that are in place. Um, and that's, I guess, I, I suppose that's a big part of the, the component. And maybe people who have some more experience or have already had a career probably are better at that, better at realizing the organization, you know, logistics are a big part of it. Yeah. No, and so, I mean, the way that we created our protocol, our training protocol is that we said, okay, it's day one, you've hired a junior software engineer, which competencies do they need to have in order to, to be a successful team member? Um, and then we reversed engineered everything backwards. So the cool and unique thing about Sabio was that we didn't go and copy other coding boot camps. There are lots of coding boot camps throughout the country that um, you know are great and fine and and they 90% of them are pretty much identical but because we were incubated in Southern California and Los Angeles um, we kind of just did things on our own by reverse engineering that process and so we came up with like a unique training protocol you're going to train 9 a.m to 9 p.m Monday through Friday and then Saturdays you need half a day 9 a.m to 3 p.m and if you can keep that up for four months with us and then when you graduate, you're actively um, applying for work and you're continuing to do some coding and some studying on general concepts of, of, of computer science. When you get to that thousand hour mark, you, you're definitely employable. And, and the last question is, what, how does the business model work? So either someone who's out of school or someone who's changing careers, how do they What's the, the incentive both for you as the business, but also to the, to the person who's maybe trying to switch careers um, and, and thinking of making this big change? Yeah, great question. So typically our tuition is $15,000. We do offer a really amazing $5,500 women in tech scholarship. So many ladies are listening to me and hearing this podcast. Um, we do have that $5,500 scholarship. So tuition is that amount and then how you go about paying the tuition there's like four to five different ways so as you mentioned we accept a lot of veteran benefits um you know we also have three different financing partners that will help people secure the financing that they need um and many of those financing partners allow you to defer your monthly payments until after you graduate and you start working um so there's lots of different ways for people to pay that tuition um and then you get basically a lifetime membership to the sabio community um and so you get the training and then we also have you know a whole host of other services um that we provide to our alumni as well so it's really like a think of it as like a lifetime membership uh upfront payment that you make well well i i appreciate your time i i think it's uh, an admirable task it's it's not an easy one to teach people to code because 
I kind of grew up coding, so it, 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 having to learn it like later, I would I it would be intimidating to me. I think I think so, um, but I, I I think it's good work, and uh, I think people will really benefit for it. Uh, so thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you, everybody, for listening to this episode of the podcast. And thank you all for your support, for your five-star reviews. I really appreciate them. All of your comments, tweets, emails, they all come to me. And they just really are just so encouraging. So I can't thank you enough. And we still have more of season three to go. So we still have more episodes coming up. But until the next episode, I hope you have a great rest of your day. <laughs>